This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, April 13th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Harm reduction encompasses far more than just opioids. Physicians practice it all the time. Many lifestyle choices that many of us don't want to give up contribute to disease that we also don't want. Harm reduction is the process of mitigating the costs of those choices. But with opioids, it's often federal and state law that stand in the way of harm reduction. Cato's Jeff Singer discusses how physicians think about it. One of the people who spoke at your recent uh, harm reduction conference was Ed Rendell yes. um, of Pennsylvania, the former governor of Pennsylvania. And uh, you note in an article recently that he has come around in a way uh, on the notion of harm reduction with respect to uh, drug overdoses that the, the United States uh, is dealing with in a or should say a significant issue that the United States is dealing with right now. Uh, how do doctors look at harm reduction in a very uh, general way? Well. It's interesting when 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 I speak with my colleagues uh, about the, the harm reduction approach to dealing with the, the drug uh, drug abuse problem, um, most of them immediately if immediately get it, even if they hadn't heard about the concept, if that's not their area of expertise. When it's, I explain it to them, they immediately are on board because when you think about it, mo- in modern medicine in a, a developed country like the United States, much of what we do every day is practice harm reduction. Uh, back in the uh, early part of the 20th century, the, the, most people were concerned about dying from infectious diseases in days before antibiotics or trauma related to job-related trauma. But in, in the modern developed countries like the U.S. and most of the Western countries, we pretty much eradicated the, the, the terrible infectious diseases, um, sanitation is better, it's, it's, technology has made it so that it's much less likely to get a job-related injury. So now, a lot of what we doctors do every day in our, in our practice of medicine is in, in, in effect harm reduction. So for example, you can get a person who's uh, overweight and eats poorly, and as a result of their poor eating habits, they have high cholesterol, and high blood pressure. And of course, this puts them at risk for all sorts of problems like heart attacks, strokes, et cetera. And uh, in many cases, the doctor knows that you can get that patient down to having no cholesterol problem or no blood pressure problem just by getting that patient to follow a strict dietary regimen, maybe exercise diet. But you're also realistic. You have a patient who you just know they, they're not going to be able to adhere to this. They don't want to adhere to it. They like to eat. They like to watch TV and stuff, potato chips in their mouth rather than go to the gym. So you say, okay, well, let me put you on a, a blood pressure medicine and a statin drug for your cholesterol so I could decrease the chances of your behavioral choices giving you a stroke or a heart attack. That's harm reduction. Or when you have a, your primary care uh, provider and you have a patient who... Uh, tells you that he or she engages in unsafe sex and you encourage them to use condoms to decrease the risk of spreading sexually transmitted disease. That's harm reduction. Or a lot of early diabetics can be controlled also with diet, but but they they don't they can't do it. So you put them on a drug like metformin to bring their 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 diabetes under control. So a lot of what we do every day is practicing harm reduction. So when then you mentioned to a healthcare practitioner, when you have a person using uh, intravenous drugs recreationally, 
where they're at risk of getting overdoses or diseases from sharing dirty needles. Um, and you say, what about the idea of uh, having facilities where they could inject uh, in the presence of healthcare practitioners with clean needles and syringes, and there's somebody standing by to save their life if they have an overdose. So you're reducing the risk of overdose or disease. Most doctors just in, just immediately when you explain that to them, they say, sure, that makes sense. It just kind of fits with everything else we do. Well, Governor Endell, of course, uh, it's in the news. He's uh, he's part of a, a group of a volunteers, a nonprofit group trying to get a safe injection facility in, in Philadelphia. It's been given the green light by the uh, City Council of Philadelphia. It's completely privately financed. But the federal government is trying to prevent him from doing that. So, but but when Governor Endell spoke here at Cato a short while ago, uh, it was clear to me from the way he spoke that he gets harm reduction. And I was, as a doctor, I was gratified to see that. Now, with respect to um, you know the, the some of the people that I spoke with who were uh, speakers at your conference were making the point that uh, one, many people don't ever inject themselves. Yeah, that's that, interesting. That there, yeah. that there are people who uh, go their whole lives uh, either dependent on or addicted to uh, opiates of some kind have never injected themselves. And and still more people don't know what safe injection actually is or how to how to go about it. That's it. Yes, yeah, true. And that's, uh, it was Darwin Fisher, I think it was discussing that. He runs the uh, safe injection facility in, in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, some uh, people, they have a friend inject them. Uh, for example, they 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 just have problems knowing how to do it properly, and uh, and then uh, they don't know how to safely do it on on their own. And when they try to, they uh, run into all sorts of problems. And this is more pronounced for drugs, uh, you know, highly addictive uh, chemicals than say food or the decision not to exercise. Because you're, because you, I mean, it's harm reduction for somebody to say, you know what, you probably just don't have the discipline to actually follow through on a lifestyle decision that would involve walking a few miles a day, eating a little less of this and eating a little more of that and, you know, getting out of the house, getting some sun, that sort of thing. Um, and it's, I think it's even more pronounced when you're talking about it in the context of an addictive chemical. Oh, absolutely. Because... In most cases, the harm reduction we practice as doctors, uh, these are choices people are making. Whereas people who are addicted, addiction is a, is a, a compulsive behavioral disease, uh, which is characterized by repeatedly doing the behavior despite negative consequences to to health, to, to your life in general. This, these people have a compulsive disorder that compels them to, to engage in this, no matter how hard they want it to stop. And uh, so, it, you know, it's, it's one, th we're already, society is, is fine with a person who doesn't have that disorder and makes the conscious choice, no, I think I'm going to continue to eat high fat foods and gain weight and and not go to the gym. And we say, okay, well, if you must do that, if you're not going to follow my advice, at least let me give you something to reduce your risks of harm. It, it's even more compelling when you have a person who can't control these, uh, the, the, they, they basically don't have as much of a, of a 
choice, control over their choice to engage in this activity without getting actual help. So moving forward, what stands in the way? What are the what are the obstacles uh, facing cities or uh, even states that would like to approve facilities for safe injection? Presumably just the fact that there are federally controlled drugs on on a particular piece of property on a regular basis poses a problem. Yeah, a lot of it is the federal law. Uh, there's some state laws there that are in a way as well, but uh, when it comes to safe injection facilities, they've been in existence uh, since the 1980s. They're in over 120 major cities. Every country in the developed world, with the exception of the United States, has them, Australia, Canada, Europe. And uh, in our country, it's federally against the law to permit the, the use of a federally banned substance on your premises. And so the, if the, and it's not even, uh, it's not even like, these groups are asking for taxpayers to fund these things. For example, the group in Philadelphia has, com has obtained completely private funding and a donor donated a building. So if the federal government would just get out of the way, safe injection facilities can get underway in, in this country. But then there are other things. Uh, for example, uh, methadone. Okay, methadone is a, a proven uh, treatment for addiction. It's, it's called... Uh, Medication-assisted treatment is the term that's been used. This is non-controversial. Even uh, some of the more strident drug warriors are okay with methadone uh, programs. But in, in this country, in order to have a methadone clinic to treat your patient your patient's uh, addiction with methadone, you have to go through all of these incredibly onerous regulations. It's enforced by the Drug Enforcement Administration. And among the rules is that the person has to come every day to the clinic and in the presence of one of the staff members, either a nurse or a doctor, you have to watch them take the methadone and then they leave. So because, you know, since they uh, have a drug addiction, I guess the, the idea is they can't be trusted. Um, and then in, in some cases uh, over time, there, there are some instances where they're allowed to take some home when they've been good good, you know, following the rules for several months. Now, um, if you live in a rural area or in a, in a city that just has one methadone clinic or something like that, that, that that's not going to work. A person's not going to drive a hundred miles every day to take their methadone in front of somebody. And also when you have people who have a compulsive disorder and oftentimes their life is in a state of chaos, to expect them to follow rules like this is is unrealistic. That's, that's one of the things that, uh, from the other people that I spoke with from your harm reduction conference, it seems like the design of their facilities almost entirely is, surrounds the idea of essentially meeting drug users where they are. They, prov they provide the ability for somebody to clean themselves, to uh, access other... Uh, benefits to learn more about how to do what they're doing it's safely. It's almost like a truck stop. <laughs> you know, you can come in, you can shower, you can clean, wash yourself. Uh, there's places where you can have conversations with people too. And and that's another thing. A lot of these people, we're talking about the people who are on the street who are IV drug users. These people have been um, cut off. They're ostracized. They have an incredibly low sense of self-esteem, which makes it even more challenging to get them off of their problem. And now all of a sudden, in addition to having a place where they could safe inject in safety, uh, they have people who appear to actually want to connect to them and care uh, about them, which, you know, conveys to them that, you know, you, you actually are worth something. I, you're worth something to me. I want to have a conversation with you. And that all kind of helps actually get them off their feet. And uh, the experience with safe injection facilities worldwide has been that they've actually been a great uh, uh, 
a magnet to get people into actual rehab programs. Because after a while, uh, when these relationships develop, they're now more open to being directed into some rehab. So not only does it save lives, but it also helps get people uh, treated for their for their addiction. Getting back to the methadone thing, it's ironic. In, in this country, under the federal law, I as a I'm a surgeon and I I have a narcotics license so I can prescribe opioids for my patients in pain and methadone is a, a, a class two opioid and I am legally allowed to prescribe methadone for pain and in fact it's not it's it's not the commonly prescribed but there are situations when you have a person who's in exquisite pain oftentimes a terminal cancer patient where we doctors will prescribe methadone as long as I prescribe it for pain that's fine. But if I prescribe it to someone who is going into withdrawal from, let's say, a heroin, and I'm prescribing it to help them deal with their withdrawal or to help them deal with their addiction, I can't do that without a special uh, methadone, uh, Drug Enforcement Administration licensed methadone clinic. I could actually get in trouble if I don't do it that way. It's kind of ironic. Now, in, in many other countries, including uh, the UK, Canada, Australia, France, doctors can who are interested in treating this can prescribe methadone to patients in their office, just like they prescribe um, any other pain medication. Uh, and in fact, doctors now can prescribe another type of medication assisted treatment, which is called uh, buprenorphine or suboxone. They have to take an eight hour uh, course to do it. But once they do that, they can prescribe that in the same setting. So here's another, again, once another example of where we're not even talking about spending money. We're talking about just the government getting out of the way. If the government reformed its methadone law so that doctors who are interested in treating people with a substance abuse problem can just write a prescription for methadone and have them follow up in their office periodically, so many more people would get access to methadone treatment for their addiction than are able to get access now. And that's just a, simply a matter of getting out of the way. Jeff Singer is a surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.